0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's uh, okay. We've got paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and our passage is on page 532 page 532, Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> we are in a sermon series on prayer um, here at New Life, Taking Hold of God, and um, in the first sermon in this series, I mentioned some of the problems that we face when it comes to uh, prayer Uh, problems that we all, I think, can identify with. We're just busy, it's hard to find time, we seem to be always distracted, and sometimes we're just worn out and we fall asleep. There's a lot of kind of practical problems when we go about our prayer life. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about the problem of prayer, but not not necessarily practical problems. We're going to be talking about a particular theological problem, a theological problem, When it comes to prayer and the theological problem is presented to us in the form of a question that maybe you have asked before and i know i've asked it and i've had the question asked to me many many times and the problem is this if god is sovereign over everything why do we pray if god has planned everything that takes place, if everything is already determined, if the beginning from the end is already set, then what possible contribution, what possible usefulness could our prayers really have? Doesn't it seem a little bit like voting in an election once the polls have closed down and all the results have been tabulated? Everything's finished, why vote? And if God has planned everything, Why pray? Now, as we think about this problem, we we have to make sure that we submit all of our thinking and reasoning to the guidance of Scripture. Because there are many other examples where we can go wrong if we just kind of follow our natural reasoning. For instance, we hear a lot about salvation being by grace, right? I mean, we preach that a, a lot here at New Life. Eternal life, salvation, is by grace and not by works. There is no work you can do to earn your salvation. It's totally by grace. Works don't contribute anything to your salvation. And so it would be easy then to conclude, well, therefore then, works are not important. Good works are unnecessary. But see, that would be an unbiblical conclusion to draw. Our works don't save us, but we are saved good works. That's what the scriptures would teach us. Another example, the Bible tells us the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, there are three gods, right? No. The Bible says there is one God who exists as three divine persons, so our reasoning might go in a particular direction that needs to be corrected by the whole council of God, and it's very similar in the situation we're exploring today. We should not reason that because God is sovereign that therefore our prayers are unnecessary. Quite to the contrary, they're very necessary and my hope is that this message will increase your desire and commitment to be a prayerful person. So, um, this is the third sermon in the prayer series. We're going to be taking seven total Sundays. By the way, if you missed a sermon in the past, you want to hear it, it's on our website. Uh, You can hear those um, uh, pretty soon after they are completed each Sunday if you miss them. Um, So our text here today is Acts chapter 4. You can please stand now for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Here's the context. The book of Acts is about the the history of the Christian church. So, Acts uh, just picks up um, where the resurrection of Jesus left off, as described in the Gospels. And um, we're reading about the growth of the church and um, uh, people coming to faith in Jesus. And uh, here in chapter 4, we're at a place where uh, Peter and John. Couple of apostles, they've been arrested, they've been questioned by the Jewish leaders, and they have been told not to speak in the name of Jesus any longer, and they have been released. And so we're picking up the story shortly after their release. Acts 4, 23. <clears throat> when they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends. And reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the prophets plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to A Father in heaven, may your word now go forth with boldness as it is preached, and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, how do we deal with this question? I wonder how, how would you answer that if somebody asked you, why should you pray if everything is already planned? So let's just unpack this text here and see what it says. There are just two points Uh, this morning but the first one that I want to very simply present to you is this God indeed is sovereign God is really sovereign he's truly totally sovereign and so let me demonstrate that to you from this text now notice here that the passage I just read to you it is a prayer it's mostly a prayer Uh, the apostles are released and they go to the Lord in prayer. And there's some things we can learn about prayer here that I think are are very helpful for us uh, to give us some instruction about how we should pray. One thing we see here is that this is a very uh, theological prayer. Um, We see that in the very beginning, verse 24. They raise their voices together to God and they say, so it's a prayer. And they address God as sovereign Lord. That's a theological term. God is sovereign. Um, You might remember when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to begin our prayer by saying, Our Father. So prayer should begin by focusing our gaze on God, by looking upward and beholding who God is. Jesus says, Behold God is Father. That's certainly a good and appropriate way to pray. Here, We have an example of looking and acknowledging something theological about God, that he is sovereign. And so that's appropriate also. It's not that one is true and the other isn't. There are different ways we can address God. And here the apostles call... God's sovereign, they go on and say he's the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, he is the creator, he is the transcendent God. Notice here, they are addressing God not as they merely wish him to be, but as he has been revealed to be. So another important thing to keep in mind when when we pray, we're praying to a God who has revealed himself and told us something about the way he is, According to his attributes and nature, and that's what the apostles are doing here. So they're addressing God as sovereign. What does that mean? How do we define sovereignty? We could just say this, the sovereignty of God means that by the wise counsel of his will, he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass, whatever has happened in human history, falls under the authority, the direction, the governance of of God. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. Now, that can sometimes disturb some people who are bothered by the fact that everything is planned. It makes them feel maybe a little constricted. Some of us don't like to think we're living under the control of somebody else. Um, John Frame addresses this. He says, the biblical writers are not horrified, as some modern writers tend to be, by the thought that we may be under the control of another. If the other, that is the one we're under the control of, if that person is God, then we could not possibly ask for a more meaningful existence. I mean, this is a good thing to be under the control of a good and wise sovereign God. So, <clears throat> the apostles here are praying theologically. They're thinking of God as sovereign. But secondly, they're praying in a very scriptural way also. You'll notice in verse 25. They quote a passage of scripture in their prayer to God. 25 and 26, why did the Gentiles rage, people's plot in vain, kings of earth set themselves, rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's from the second psalm. And so we see here that the scriptures, the Bible is not just to be read, but actually the Bible is something that can be prayed as well. We can pray the Bible to God using the words he has given us. In Scripture, to pray back to Him. Notice something also, I think, very interesting. There's a bit of a tangent. Notice here that this passage, Psalm 2, came through the mouth of our father David, a man, but also through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is God. So we see here something about the inspiration of Scripture. Scripture comes to us through human authors directed by the Holy Spirit, The scriptures are human in one sense, divine in another sense, and uh, if you're interested in this topic, Pastor Brian has been teaching on our doctrine of scripture in our Discipleship Hour classes starting at 10 o'clock, and we'll continue that today, but um, an interesting lesson here on the inspiration of scripture. So this prayer is a, a scriptural one. Our prayers don't have to be entirely the recitation of scripture, but the scripture should be the wind in the sails of our prayers, guiding, directing, the way we pray to God and the words we used as we pray to him. And then thirdly, we see in this prayer that it's very practical also. It's a practical prayer, and by that I mean the details of the situation that the apostles are facing are stated very Clearly there in verse 27, they say, truly in this city, so there's the where, (laughs) they're talking about this place, the city of Jerusalem, Um, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, so that's the who. So they're mentioning all these individuals who were involved in this situation, and the what. What? is that all of these people were gathered against Jesus. That is, that they made decisions and took actions that ended up putting Jesus on the cross. And so as the apostles are praying here, they're, they're telling God these things. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, we know that God knows these things... <laughs> These people praying aren't thinking that they're informing God about something that he doesn't know. They've got to let him know because he's asleep. They've got to awaken him to what has happened. God knows. But nonetheless, they speak these details. They describe their situation to God. And there's a lesson there about our own prayers, that we can do that. You can do that. Yeah, have your prayers informed by Scripture, but also tell God about the stuff that's going on in your life. The practical, down-to-earth things. The fact that you're nervous about your upcoming exam. The fact that you feel rejected by your friends. The fact that you're not quite sure how you're going to pay this upcoming bill. God knows all that, but tell him that anyway. Speak to him in a practical, down-to-earth way about your fears, your worries, your regrets, your frustrations. An example set for us here about how to pray. So this prayer, theological, scriptural, practical. But then it goes on and we see just how sovereign God really is. So just put some feet on this. Uh, Look what they say here in uh, verse 28. All of these people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, etc., they all gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place they all did exactly what you God determined and sovereignly arranged for them to do Herod he had some discussions with Jesus liked hearing Jesus but ended up turning Jesus over to Pontius Pilate planned by God Pontius Pilate questioned Jesus. They had some discussions about the nature of truth. Pilate said, I don't find any guilt in him. He tries to release him. People won't let him do it. Pilate ends up delivering Jesus over to be crucified. Planned by God. So God determined it would happen. All of these people, Gentiles, people of Israel, Jews. Now we're talking about masses of people who are together. And they said, no, we... Uh, don't want Jesus taken down from the cross. We want Barabbas taken down from the cross. Don't crucify Barabbas, crucify Jesus. That's what we want. That's what they said. That's what the crowd, multiple voices of people, declared that. Planned by God. That's the way God wanted it. That's the way God determined that it would be. All of this happened exactly as God predestined it would occur. So, if that's the case... God's predestined things, he's worked it all out, it's all finished, it's all planned. No reason to pray, right? Except that what Peter and John and the believers are doing is praying to this sovereign God and in fact, it's the first thing they do if you go back to verse 23 when they were released. Well, first of all, they go to their friends and they report uh, what had happened. And then after they do that, verse 24, they lift up their voices together and they say and they pray. It's, not only do they pray, it's, it seems the highest priority for them. It's not a secondary thing. It's not eighth or ninth on their list of to-do things. It's their first inclination, even though they have this very, very high view of the sovereignty of God. There's an important balance that we need to strike when we think about prayer. Um, We we are a a Presbyterian church, and if you know anything about Presbyterians, we we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. We we think it's an important thing to teach. We think it's biblical. And yet there are some who rely so much, think so much, uh, emphasize so much the sovereignty of God that it can lead to a kind of apathy. There, there is the possibility of getting this out of balance, and we just kind of conclude, well, God has determined everything. It's all going to happen. I just, I don't have to do anything. Sometimes when you think too much of God's sovereignty, you begin to lose your urgency for certain things, and that would be an unbiblical conclusion based on what we're reading here. The first thing they do is pray. Their prayer is an urgent concern for them. But the other imbalance is if we don't think, emphasize, believe enough in God's sovereignty, it can lead to anxiety. Too much sovereignty leads to apathy. Not enough sovereignty leads to anxiety. We don't know, is God really in control or not? Can he really accomplish what he said he would do? That makes us nervous is God all powerful or, or not? Does it depend on me to make all these things happen? And if we live that way, I don't see how you cannot become very fearful and anxious. But it seems to me that Peter and John and the believers here in Acts chapter 4 strike this balance. They believe in both the sovereignty of God and their responsibility to pray. And they hold them in balance and believe them both fully and completely. And in fact, I wonder if it's the sovereignty of God that is actually what motivates them to pray because friends, the question here really is probably not so much if God is sovereign, why pray? I think the better question is, if God is not sovereign, why pray? If God is not sovereign, why bother? Why would you bother praying to a God asking a God to do things that he might not be able to do because he's not sovereign? The fact that God is sovereign is what should motivate us to be on our knees pursuing God, asking him to save and change the heart of your atheist friend who just seems so far from God you can't ever imagine him or her coming to believe. God is sovereign. He can change that heart. So pray for revival in the church. You know, in our nation right now, we look and it just seems like things are spinning out of control. It seems like they're worse than they've ever been. We become despondent. But if God is sovereign, He can bring about revival in the church. He can change the course of things in our nation. God is sovereign enough to do that. So pray for that. Pray for the healing of race relations in our nation. We look and we see things in that area seeming to get worse and worse. Can God do anything about that? If you don't believe He's sovereign, you're not sure, but we do believe He's sovereign, so yes, He can. So pray for that. Pray for mass conversions here at New Life. Have you ever thought about praying that unbelievers would come to this place and multiple people would become saved and born again by the Spirit, we'd be baptizing new believers in droves here. I mean, can a sovereign God do that? If we believe that he can, let's pray for him and ask him to do it. Do you have a son or a daughter who has gone astray, apart from the faith, fleeing from God, your heart is broken, can God bring that son or daughter back? Yes, he can. Because he's sovereign so the question is not (laughs) if God is sovereign why pray the question is not if, if God is not sovereign why why bother but he is sovereign and so that leads us to the second thing which is this your prayers matter God is sovereign yes and your prayers matter now To this question, why should we pray? I mean, there's one kind of simple reason for that, and that is just simply this, because God tells you to. I mean, we could just end the discussion right there. Um, You should pray because God commands it. You, You should pray because prayer is the sign of spiritual life in you. It's like a pulse. When you want to know if somebody's alive, you grab their wrist and you see if they've got a pulse. If I want to know if you are spiritually alive, I want to know, do you pray? Just as a baby born, the first sign of life in a baby is that the baby cries out and the first sign of life in a person born again is that they cry out in prayer to God, not just for conversion, but throughout their Christian lives. J.C. Ryle says it like this, prayer is to faith, what breath is to life. How a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension. And how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension, too. Psalm 14 talks about the fool who says there is no God. And in Psalm 14, 4, it says here's what characterizes the fool who says there is no God they don't cry out to God, they don't pray atheists don't pray. You're a Christian and you don't pray? I'm not saying you're an atheist, but if you don't pray, you're acting like an atheist. Because that's the way atheists live. They don't cry out to God. So prayer should be the most obvious thing for us as Christians. It's commanded in the Scriptures. But I think we want to know, don't we, that prayer is not just... um, some empty ritual we're going through. It's not just a hoop that God wants us to jump through. The prayer actually matters, that your prayers actually do something. I think we all want to know that. <coughs> and I think this passage assures us that that actually is the case. So let's go back to the passage. Let me show you this. <coughs> Here's Peter and the believers and John. They've affirmed the sovereignty of God. And now we get to their specific plea in verse 29. Here's what they ask. Now, Lord, look upon their threats of the Jewish leaders and grant to your servants, that's to them, Peter, John, the believers, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Give us boldness to continue speaking your word. That's their request. Now, that's a remarkable request because remember, they just got out of jail I mean, I think maybe my prayer in that situation would be, please, Lord, let me not go back to jail. (laughs) Or, in my vindictiveness, please bring heaping, burning coals of judgment upon those Jewish leaders who put me in jail the last time. But that's not what they pray. What, What are they praying for? Boldness. To keep doing the very same thing that got them put in jail the first time. They're praying for something that's very kingdom oriented. They want the word to go forth. They don't want to shrink back. And so they ask, Lord, please make us bold. Help us to keep doing this. Help us to keep preaching your word. So, was that prayer answered? That was their request. Was the prayer answered? Well, we have to go forward to chapter 5 to answer that. I didn't read this, but let me just give you a summary of what happens in chapter 5, verse 18, we find that they get arrested again. And they get put in jail again. <clears throat> and an angel comes along and releases them miraculously out of jail. And they immediately go back into the temple and they start teaching again. And then word gets out to the Jewish leaders that those guys that you put in jail, they're actually out of jail now, and they're preaching the word. And so <clears throat> they go and they get Uh, Peter and John and they bring them back before them and they say we told you to stop preaching we told you to stop talking in the name of Jesus what are you guys doing and here's Peter Peter the guy who just a little while ago if you might recall from the gospel stories could not even stand up for Jesus in the presence of a 10 year old servant girl He was scared of a little girl, denied the name of Jesus, so afraid of what might happen. That same Peter standing before these Jewish leaders who have the power to put him back in jail, and he says, This we must obey God rather than you. What's more important to us is that we submit to God rather than to any human authority, and Jewish counsel, that refers to you. We are going to keep preaching the word. Now that, I think, qualifies as boldness. Exactly what they prayed for. They asked for boldness, God gave them boldness. Now here's my question. Would they have been that bold if they hadn't prayed to be bold? If they hadn't offered up that prayer the way they did, would they have shrunk back in fear when they were questioned by the Jewish council? I mean, there's a sense in which we don't know, I guess. This is speculative, I will admit. But I would suggest to you that no, they wouldn't have been that bold. That they wouldn't have been granted that boldness if they hadn't asked for it. There are certain things that don't happen and that you don't have because you don't pray. And that's just straight out of James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. Implication is, if you would have asked, you would have had. Now, this doesn't mean that just whatever you ask for, you get. God is not a genie in a lamp. He's not a vending machine. You put in a quarter and get your bag of chips. That's not the way it works. You don't get whatever you ask for, nor can you coerce God against his sovereign will. You can't change his will, you can't change his mind in that way, but it does mean, what this passage is telling us, and what James 4.2 tells us, that your prayers matter, that they do work in God's plan to accomplish something, that they're not just an empty ritual, it's not just a hoop to jump through. Your prayers play a significant part in what actually happens. Doug Kelly who's written this book If God Already Knows Why Pray if this is a question that really uh, bothers you that's a book I would recommend to you but he says in some extraordinary way the unchanging sovereign God with an eternally defined purpose for his creatures invites our input into the making of history I mean that's exciting (laughs) I mean that's Wow, I mean, that makes me want to pray. I mean, you might feel weak, you might feel insignificant, you might feel there's very little that, that you can do, but you can always pray. And God can use your prayers to do amazing, miraculous things. Prayer is the mechanism that God doesn't have to use, but he chooses to use to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need our prayers. But he desires to use them. It's just the way he's chosen to do things. He, he wants us to be involved. He wants us to participate in what he's doing. And prayer is one way that happens. As I try to think of an illustration, I mean, all illustrations of this sort, you know, they fall short, I know that. So don't be too hard on this illustration. But, um, I mean, imagine a father is out, uh, he's got a big property and he's out cutting the grass. He's on a tractor, and he's riding this tractor, and um, he decides to take his young son, and he brings his son up in his lap, and the son puts his hands on the wheels, and on the wheel, and, and kind of steers the tractor. And there they are, kind of cutting the lawn. The father, completely in control of what's happening, but there's his son on his lap, in some way, participating. And so that son then might afterward go to mom and say, you know, mommy, I cut the grass, I cut cut the grass. (laughs) And there's to a degree that that's true, Um, but really what's happening is that the father has just allowed his son to join him in the task. And our Heavenly Father allows, desires, chooses to allow us to join together. And his task of expanding his kingdom throughout the earth. The purpose here, friends, is to motivate you to pray, to see prayer not as a duty, not as it is a duty, but it's not a mere duty. It's a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. It, It is not a distraction from ministry. It's the essence of ministry. We, you know, So often we tend to think that we don't have time to pray because we've got to get so many other things done. Prayer is the way you get things done, spiritually speaking. <laughs> now I know, there are meals that need to be prepared. There are groceries that need to be purchased. There are jobs we need to go to. <laughs> you can't perform your job by staying home and praying about it. But spiritually speaking, the real work, the significant work that God does is through prayer our prayers. So friends, let me ask you, how how will your prayer life change knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that your prayers matter, knowing that he desires to use your prayers in the making of history? The reason Jesus went to the cross, the reason God predetermined that that would happen, the reason that God in his sovereignty determined that Jesus would go to the cross is because that is what is necessary for you and me to be forgiven for our sins including our sins of prayerlessness (laughs) thank the Lord including our sin of living like atheists what Jesus did on the cross atones for that covers that sin but that's not the only thing that the work of Jesus did for you and for me His work also reconciled you to the Father and opened up a way for you to speak to this sovereign God who has planned all things from the beginning to the end. You get to speak to Him. You get to commune with Him. And here's what we're told in the book of Hebrews Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So friends, let's turn from our apathy about prayer and draw near to him by the blood of Jesus, and let's turn from our anxiety, trusting fully in our sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will and uses your prayers and my prayers to do it. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we receive in it. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. And Father, please make us a praying people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, close by reciting the Lord's Prayer as we're doing in this sermon series. Let's stand before we sing and say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.